the shift I think we're making now is the purpose of an organization used to be to create value and the people born the means by which we created that value. Now we there's so much we don't understand about what really happens in work that the purpose of our organization needs to be developing the people and the value will become a byproduct. So a manager shifts from calling up or having a meeting with the people report to them and say, where are you on this? Where are you on that? It's very task-based, not motivating, right? No, no. But instead, if they say, how are you? What are you working on? How can I help you? Where can I remove obstacles? Do you need more resources? If you do, why do you need them? So there's accountability, but there's also, how can I help you be successful? That's a relationship-based thing. It's That's much more motivating. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle Lemoreau, and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. Today on the show, we're talking about the future of work with Heather McGowan, who's a researcher, thought leader, and strategist, and is recognized as one of the leading voices on the subject. She's transforming mindsets and entire organizations around the globe with her message about how the next phase of work will focus on continuous learning and how leadership must shift to guide these expectations. In her book, co-written with Chris Shipley, The Empathy Advantage, they unpack the five interlocking trends that placed agency in the hands of workers, the great resignation, the great refusal, the great reshuffle, the great retirement, and great relocation, collectively delivering the great reset. This book is a call to action and an invitation to make work more meaningful, to structure the working environments and unleash the human potential. Welcome, Heather. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. What a complex and fascinating <laughs> endeavor you've taken on in this world of work. But is this yeah. your life? Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to write The Empathy Advantage and and how you came yeah. upon empathy as sort of the key here? I primarily make my living as a keynote speaker. And I do that by explaining to people, I say it's the future work, but I got to tell you, future sells better than now. What I'm really doing is explaining to people what has happened with work, what is happening with work. And I started this because I worked on both the supply and the demand side of talent. So the supply side of talent is education. And I worked in higher ed for a little more than a decade, across three different institutions. And then um, the demand side, which is the people who consume human talent are corporations and organizations. And I spent much more of my life in that world. And I felt neither was understanding how the world of work could or should be changing. That's how I got to this point. And so I met Chris Shipley along the way. Our last book was The Adaptation Advantage. And that was that came out in smack in the middle of the first days of the pandemic, which was eerily prescient because it was telling people how they had to adapt to rapidly changing circumstances. And so that became sort of an accidental guidebook. Yes. And then after watching how work has been changing over the last you know, three years, I found that basically there were two transformations taking place and four leadership shifts that came out of you know the five grades you already mentioned. Um, and we I realized we had a short window 
um, to get this in the hands of people who really needed it. Because the zeitgeist had changed. And so we wrote the book in about a hundred some odd days. Oh my gosh, you did. Okay, so this is so interesting. Okay, so that's great. Well, I'm curious, and you kind of touch upon this, but tell us, was COVID the tipping point to a trend that had been slowly emerging over the last couple of decades or something that was the direct result of COVID or sort of a combination? It's sort of a combination. So the two transformations are, um, one is a changed relationship between individuals and organizations. And the second is a changed context from linear to complex. Okay. Changed relationship between individuals and organizations is you really your empowered workforce. So that great resignation, great reshuffle, great reset, which I can break that down for you in a second. Um, Both of those things were long in the making. So um, we have, you know, labor shortages. That's not something that happened due to COVID, but you know, the boomer retirement started happening in COVID. Um, We have lower, you know, fertility rate. That is decades ago that that, you know, became apparent. We have um, generational change and attitudinal change that comes with that. We sort of knew that was coming, but weren't really ready for it. So a lot of the things were much longer in the making. And then um, the shift from linear to complex comes out of 15 years of digital disruption with rapidly emerging skills and knowledge. And that was much longer in the making too, but they all kind of came to head under COVID because COVID was an existential existential crisis yeah. where people started saying, you know, it's not about where I work, but so where work fits in my life. Yes. And I, am I really doing this with my life? Am I really working just to pay for childcare and not see my children or am I really, you know, not doing things in my life because I've, you know, become addicted to hustle culture. So between the two of those things, I think the zeitgeist really changed. Absolutely. Well, I would love for you to take us through the five, you know, great R's. (laughs) And there's one in particular that I'll do a follow-up on that I'm really deeply curious about, which is the great um, resignation. But um, so take us through what those five R's are. So, um, Anthony uh, coined the term, the the great resignation, and he said it in an interview. He's an organizational psychologist. Mm-hmm. We interviewed him in the book. He didn't know how much staying power it would have. And then the more and more he looked into it, it really began in 2009. After the last recession, we started to see churn rates go up, quit rates go up. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, we're no longer spending our entire career with an organization. We haven't done that in decades, but we sort of act like we have. Yeah. Or our parents did. And so we saw that. (laughs) Yeah. And we go in, we go in for job interviews and they act like you're getting married when in reality, you're going to be there for two years, three years, five years, sometimes 10 years. It's not a lifetime marriage, but that's how they act like it. Um, So that piece of it had, had started to change. And um, Josh Bursman has some great research on the on the rate of churn now, which is a combination of, you know, it's no longer required that you stay with an organization for your whole career or for even a required number of years. So get in, learn what you're going to learn, contribute where you're going to contribute and go on to a better place if this isn't a good fit. Yeah. We also have rapid creative destruction of jobs. So Jobs are consolidating and changing. New jobs are emerging. So that is churn. That's people leaving the workforce, going back into another and a different job. We have labor force shortages um, when some of that is generational. So great, great resignation is really the quit weight rate stuff. And some of that is creative destruction of jobs. Some of that is people leaving jobs for other jobs. That's sort of got the headline. So below that is great retirement. And great retirement is there are 75 million baby boomers who are 
turning 65 and leaving the workforce between now and about 2030, they estimate. We should have been prepared for that and don't seem to be. Mm. Um, The great reshuffle is people reskilling, actively saying, I'm leaving this job for another job, like directly into another job. Mm. And uh, Pew had an estimate, I think it was like 53% of folks who left between 20 and 2021 went into a new industry. And that that rate seems to be about the same. So that's people working to their potential. I think that's good news. Yeah, agreed. Um, the great resignation is talent is mobile. We have to get used to that. That has implications in terms of how we organize work. Um, the great refusal is folks who uh, were working for minimum wage who say, I'm not putting up with this abuse anymore. If minimum wage had kept pace with pre-pandemic inflation, it would have been about $23, $24 an hour. And, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting for 15. So 725 or whatever the federal rate is, just people just saying they're not doing it. So that's why we're seeing some of our persistent inflation, because we do have to raise the rates of, of folks who've been underpaid for too long. Um, the great uh, relocation Upwork estimates are something like 19 million Americans who are looking to move. You know, they're leaving this city, going to this county, leaving this county, going to the city. We're seeing real changes in settlement patterns and some out of the country, but mostly in the country. I think that's just beginning because I think people are sort of deciding where where and how they want to live. So collectively, that gives you the great reset. It's so I find it all so interesting. And um, let's just unpack a little on the great resignation. So a year ago, I wanted to have a conversation on the future of work when I saw a headline that 10 million people had quit their jobs. And I read in your book, here we are a year later, it was over 47 million people mm-hmm. who quit their jobs. So talk to us about what prompted this. And are those people also part of, what did we call it, the the re, where they transferred to another job, the reshuffle, where they're ending up going in? Or was it like... Because I just yeah, wonder, how so, do people live, Heather? Like, how do you live without the the money? So what what was going on there? I, yeah, I think people got really confused by that because they'd hear people quit and they presume all these people have just left, all of them, all of them have left the workforce. Right. That's not true. There okay. are certain categories of people who left the workforce. Um, older folks who said, you know what, I'm more compromised. I'm more likely to get COVID and get ill from it, especially before there were vaccines. Some of those folks say, you know, I'm retiring a few years early. Um, other folks uh, were saying, you know what, I'm just working to pay for childcare. I barely make money above and beyond what I have to pay for childcare and the mental toll isn't worth it anymore. So those two categories of people just said, I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. And some frontline workers, some people changed their lives. So there were two family incomes who said, you know what, we're going to live differently on one income. So there's some of that stuff, but most of the people went back into the workforce in another capacity, but we just paid attention to the exits, not the entrances. Yeah. Okay. So it's so interesting. I can just imagine though, do you, you do keynotes, but do you also consult to leaders because talk about a shakeup. So even if some of this was happening kind of slowly over, you know, since let's say 2009 or over decades, COVID just, it transformed the way people live and work. It just did. And my, my husband started a company five years ago. He, he's never had in person, like everybody, it's always been, everybody's remote. Everybody's yeah. remote. He'll have a WeWork space in Chicago if there's more than, you know, a couple of employees. So people have an option to go into an office, but sure. he's never had that. And I, he's more of an innovator though. So for him that works, but if you're a big company, those, those companies want their people back and this is what's happening. Right. And so I'm understanding though, that most of the people don't want to go back. So tell us what's going on in terms of 
you yeah. know, organizations and how a leader manages. That's definitely a hot button issue. And this this is how I look at it. I think we don't know yet. And I think we're not good at admitting we don't know yet. And mm-hmm. I mean, admitting and acknowledging that we don't know yet. What we found out over those thousand plus days is we had pretty good business continuity against some pretty hard headwinds. Does that mean we should work that way forever? No. Does everybody want to? No. Do managers and leaders, are they prematurely calling people back to the office based on biases? Yes. Um, yes. I think sometimes there's a there's a lot of, you know, this is the way I work. I like to see my people, blah, blah, blah. We need to have studies that look at how often do we need to get together? When do we need to get together? What types of work? Um, fairness for for people so that you get more flexibility for for more folks. And I see when I talk to organizations that have, you know, manufacturing or in-person things, they've they've managed to make more flexible schedules about when you need to be there because your work is demands you to be in person. So people are trying to figure stuff out. Um, I think the bottom answer, the real answer is we don't know yet. Mm. Everyone got focused on where work takes place, but I think the pandemic really upended five questions. Who works? The knowledge workplace was designed for a straight white man who had a wife at home to have, manage all the caregiving responsibilities. And we saw that um, DEI issues, DIB issues. We saw that with women and, and the lack of childcare infrastructure. Uh, what we do for work, tasks are rapidly being consumed by technology so that more work can be done by fewer people, more work can be done in collaboration. It's not that machines or technology are replacing full jobs, but they're reshaping them. So that's changing work. How we work, how we lead, and how we lead is real focus of the book. Much more emphasis on collective intelligence and individual intelligence. Yeah. Because most people are managing teams full of people who have skills and knowledge they don't have. And that skills and knowledge is generally unique to individuals on the team. So you need much more collaboration. Where we work, I think what really happened was, and I think a visual, so I'm (laughs) going to use my hands to demonstrate it. So we had this smaller circle called our personal life, and we had agency over it. And we had a bigger circle that eclipsed that smaller circle called our professional life. And we had no agency over that. And what happened in the pandemic is those two things merged. The professional circle got bigger. I mean, sorry, the personal circle got bigger. The professional circle got smaller. And we had agency over that integration. And I think that's what people are reluctant to lose, saying, you know, I had autonomy. You trusted me. Now you're taking away the way I had come to a better balance about my life. So I don't think it's about where so much. I think it's about that agency, autonomy, and trust. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of hybrid situations happening where you're like, quote unquote, required to go in a couple of days a week, but maybe you even get to choose what those days are. I just, I liked working in person and I haven't been in the workforce, like in a traditional setting like that in over like 12 years. So I would never weigh in because I mean, people who are, you know, living this have a different feeling. I could see not wanting to commute, like especially if your job was far away, the hours that you save, that means maybe more time with your kids or your family or even just self-care. Like I can see both sides. Um, I just, I loved the in-person connection that you had. And as an extrovert who likes to talk things, I don't know, I just, that fed me, but for other people, maybe it doesn't. I mean, do you have personal thoughts on it? I mean, I know the data is not quite there, but you know, I think that my biggest thought is that we need to look at the data and we need to stop with the biases. But, you know, as a speaker, I yeah. went from basically spitting on people for a living. I mean, I was in the respiratory <laughs> drops, droplets business. So I was going to be doing that, right? 
So um, I went to virtual. I had to understand cameras and lighting and I wear glasses and it's hard to do lighting. I had to figure, you know, figure that all out. And then as we emerge from that, I do some talks that are virtual and I do many more talks now that are in person. I love the energy of an in-person talk. I don't like the flight delay. I don't like not having dinner with my family. Yeah. You know, so there, I see the trade-offs of both. And I think we need to figure out, like, just as when you hire me to speak, do you need me virtually or do you need me in person? Do you need that worker? If it's two or three days a week, if it's randomly two or three days a week where they're going to sit in an office and Zoom people everywhere else who are home that day, what are you doing? Right. It's got to be curated around something meaningful. So you're yeah. making connections or you're doing something you couldn't do virtually. I love that. And I'll just tell you, a friend of mine works in a corporate environment and the days that she's in when there's meetings in the in during the in-person days, she says that they Zoom from their offices. So they're yeah, not I know. I've heard a lot of that. That, I, that blew my mind. I'm like, have we maybe we've lost a little of the social skills, like of how to actually relate? And that's part of why I think there is some value to the in-person. But Diane Mulcahy who is the woman whose name I couldn't remember before the oh, mics yeah. went on, her last name, um, who teaches a class in the gig economy, is a fan of like having that autonomy. So I think it's, you know, based on her data. So I think it's, like you said, let's let's see what the data, it's, we're still in it. We're not out yeah. of it yet, right? It's still- we're, we're in, Yeah, we're in a beta phase, maybe. There maybe. we go. We're in, I like that. We're in beta phase. So we'll, we'll have more data on that. So I just think it's fascinating. Um, you had a chart in your book which was really interesting to me. And it was showing like the boomers, the Gen X, the, mm -hmm. I'm going to forget somebody here, the millennials, the Gen Z. I feel like I forgot someone. Who did I forget in that chart? Anyone? No, that's all of them. Uh, silent generation is the, maybe 1% in the workforce and alpha is not there yet. So we're okay. still uh, Okay. And then it was like, what was like important to them and how they perceive work and what a difference, especially from a boomer to mm -hmm. a Gen Z. So how, how does that's that's a big ask for a leader. I mean, you especially if they're they fall into, let's say, the boomer mindset and they're dealing with people like Gen Z that I understand are looking for like purpose and meaning and contribution. So how does a leader navigate this stuff? I mean, tell us some of the research that you've found on this. It's really interesting. Well, that's exactly why we call the book The Empathy Advantage, because how do you bridge these different value sets and different promises? And they're not and they're not just I, I you know, there are some folks who are millennials who have a boomer mindset or a boomer that has a Gen X Z mindset or whatever. Sure. But in general, you were given sort of a promise around work. So for boomers, it was trade your loyalty for security, you know, put your head down, do the work, give it your all and then retire. Gen uh, Xers who definitely need a marketing department because most people don't know they're Gen Xers, which is the most Gen X thing ever. Um, <laughs> those folks start to see their parents lose their jobs. So they, they're like, I'm not trading that loyalty if the security's not going to be there. Um, they also were the first uh, generation to start bringing work home. I remember when I got my, you know, my first job, I had an email account. I got a cell phone shortly. So we started to become a 24 hours a day. Yes. You would think with those two things, we'd have a little bit more of an identity. But anyway, <laughs> and then um, I think it's because we were a smaller generation. And then the uh, millennials, which were the first uh, generation for which divorce was a norm, they saw even less of the loyalty around work. So they are more entrepreneurial. They want to work with a sense of purpose. They're much more, in, in, a little more individualistic. And then when you get to um, Gen Z, which is just coming online in the workforce right now, they're the most fascinating generation, I think, because 
Um, they're not going to work unless they can work with a sense of purpose. They're willing to um, just forgive, you know, you know, forget in engaging in the workforce for long periods of time or be underemployed until they can find something that has meaning. Now, maybe it'll change as they age, but I think one of the reasons is when you look at Gen Z, they were born in 9-11. They don't know a time before terrorism. Um, they started seeing uh, mass school shootings when they were in grade school. That So they had the trauma of that. They were in around grade school when the global financial crisis happened. So they started to lose their parents, lose their jobs, a lot of economic fragility there. So they got safety fragility, economic fragility. They have no national security. They've never known a time without war. And then when they're starting to understand social contracts, um, they're seeing them all disrupted between the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement. And then they're graduating, finishing their education, entering the workforce in a global pandemic. So they have had, you know, pretty much nonstop trauma at every major stage of development. And so they're not going to negotiate on some fronts or seemingly so right now. So I think they're going to change the work in a very positive way. I say they're glacial, glacial. They're going to move slowly and cut a wide path. I love it. I, I have a, I have a Gen Z. She's a teen. She's only 14. So she's, but you know, I, I have, I have a lot of faith and hope in, in that generation as well. And they're did you the say most the, diverse and most, most educated generation we've ever had too. So, oh, they are. Did you yeah. say they're going to make up to 30% of the workforce at some point yes. soon? When, like when is 30, that? 30. 2030. They'll make 30% of the workforce. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, we're not going to have you project on where that's going to go. But but again, with leaders, so empathy, culture, I mean, you write 90% of the value in most organizations is generated from intangible capital, your people. Yeah. So we need to care for these quote unquote assets, which are your people, right? And their their health and wellness. Talk about that. Yeah, so we we were we began as you know when we when we first industrial revolution became as like a manufacturing society. So manufacturing was you know humans were a cost to contain, and we still have had that mindset. We want to keep our labor costs down. And what transitioned in the, around the eighties, early nineties is more and more value came for intangible capital. We moved away from being a manufacturing society. We moved into being a knowledge society. And we still treated humans as a cost to contain. And so the shift I think we're making now is the purpose of an organization used to be to create value and the people born the means by which we created that value. Now we, there's so much we don't understand about what really happens in work that the purpose of our organization needs to be developing the people and the value will become a byproduct. So a manager shifts from calling up or having a meeting with the people report to them and say, where are you on this? Where are you on that? It's very task-based. Yeah. Not motivating, right? No, no. But instead, if they say, how are you? What are you working on? How can I help you? Where can I remove obstacles? Do you need more resources? If you do, why do you need them? So there's accountability, but there's also, how can I help you be successful? That's a relationship-based thing. It's That's much more motivating. I love that. I mean, even when you're just asking those questions, there's like a softening that happens. You're like, yeah. oh, how if you're starting, how are you? Yeah. Um, and also, you know, those stats you were talking about with the Gen Z, we know that the mental health issues have right. skyrocketed for them too. And for, and for all of us, but, but they're way ahead of the rest of us. Yes. Oh, yeah. Based on what you just said, I, yeah. I think that really kind of drove it home for me why why that demographic in particular has got hit so hard, I think. Yeah. Um, so having that care and that empathy for your workers, I think is so, um, critical. Um, so I guess it's just, 
if you've got, I know you give the keynotes and, and everything, but if you, you're going into, you know, you're sitting in front of a leader and they're like, you know, what are like top three things I can do like today that's going to change the dynamic? Because we, you also talk about in the book that people don't, that, what is it? Uh, it's, you're going to correct my stats if I say, say it wrong, but it was like seven different industries and five different jobs or something like that the Gen Z is going to go into. So yeah, it, you're yeah, only going to have people for two to three years. Sorry. So how, you want to invest in them, but also, you know, you're going to lose them. Like, how do you reconcile some of that? And then also like foster the best work from them while you have them? Well, that, that's sort of the old adage, the CFO and the CEO, CEO are talking and the CFO says, what if we, you know, invest in all these people and they leave? And the CEO says, what if they don't and they, we, they stay? I mean, that, that is how we have to think about it. We need to develop our workforce categorically. People are going to leave, you know, the tech layoffs that are happening right now, they're going to be hiring those people back and they're going to be hiring back for more. So the reality is we have a finite workforce and it's not big enough for our needs. So we have to in, invest in people. So in terms of like, what are the, you know, two or three things you can do? Yeah. First and foremost, humanize work. Be authentic, be vulnerable. Um, to the extent that you can um, hold your people accountable, but as an agreement, not as a man, you know, a dictate and a mandate. We did too much dictating and mandating and we've got, you know, low levels of engagement, high levels of disengagement, really high levels of burnout. That didn't work clearly. Now is our opportunity to rethink it. Right. How do you, you know, unleash the potential of a human It's by getting them self-propelled. You know, ask them what they're interested in, what kind of projects are they enjoying, and start sculpting jobs around that rather than creating fixed and rigid jobs and then finding people that try to fit into these arbitrary boxes that are often defined by the last occupant with a lot of irrelevant requirements. Yes. So we have this great opportunity to rethink and, and humanize work, but it really begins with be a human yourself, ask them about themselves ask them how to make them successful, ask them what they're interested in and try to, you know, reorganize. I remember um, I worked for um, Randy Swear, if he happens to be listening to this, and I worked in an organization. He knew I hated meetings. And um, if I was in a meeting and I and everybody was going too slow, I would probably get a little disruptive. So he sculpted <laughs> my job around the things I really liked doing and just took things off my plate that I didn't really need to be in to get me to focus on the things that I liked doing, I was likely going to spend more time and energy and engagement on. Um, and he, he basically sculpted my job around my interests. And um, I don't know if he even realized he was doing it. And I don't think it's as hard as we think it is. Love that. Love that. Okay. So that was, so that's, so you talked in the book about don't focus on job description, like to filling a specific job description based on the last employee, focus on the skill sets and those, right? And yep. their, their strengths. Treating them like a human, asking yep. them questions about themselves. So it's, you know, you know, being as a leader, authentic and vulnerable, saying, you know, okay, there's number one, saying, I don't know. Try saying, I don't know, let's find out. Because chances are good you don't, and you're probably pretending you do. <laughs> Two, start every meeting by asking folks, how are you? Um, Rashad Tabakawala gave me this advice, four ways to start a meeting. Um, how are you? What's on your mind? Can I help you? Can you help me? Can I give you some feedback? Can you give me some feedback? Any one or all four of those creates a very human experience. So that's number two. Um, number three would be job sculpting to the extent that you can. So that's three. Thank you. Thanks for yeah. 
breaking that down. And so it's like very easy to follow. I appreciate that. Um, and I think, you know, just again, when you're asking those questions, we would li- live in a better world if we just engaged with people generally like that. Yeah. Right. It's so, not a like even starting idea. from home, right. It's not <laughs> right. Exactly. This yeah. isn't like rocket science here. We can, we can do this. Um, yep. People are going to pick up empathy and va- advantage. They're going to read it. They're going to get, I mean, there's a lot of great stories. You talk about Tom Brady and from Boston, you know, how he invests <laughs> yeah. in his health and, you know, there's things companies can do. They can, they're going to get all the strategies. Um, this is, you know, to give people a sense of like what happened and, you know, some of the things that they can do, but, um, you know, we're not going to get into like the futuristic things. Like I, I wonder about AI and like what's yeah. going to happen, right? This is about the now. I love what you said. This isn't really about the future work. This is really truly about the yeah. now. Heather, you mentioned in your book and you go through a lot of stuff, but one thing that you talk about in a very tangible way is that these two transformations have taken place and require four leadership shifts. Can you walk us through them? Sure. Um, I think that the highest level is a way to kind of understanding what's happening right now with the zeitgeist and how we need to adapt is two transformations have taken place. The first is a workforce transformation. It's from uh, a changed relationship between individuals and organizations. The second transformation is a transformation of work in general. And that's a transformation in context from linear to complex. And these two things together require four leadership shifts. So the first is a shift in mindset from managing people to enabling success. So gone are the days where you're the unquestioned expert making decisions in certainty and having everybody report to you. Now, most of the people who report to you have skills and knowledge you don't have. So you actually work for them. That's a mindset shift. You big. enable their success. <laughs> That's actually big for a lot of people, right? Yeah. And then the second one yeah. is a shift in culture from peers as competitors to peers as collaborators. So when everybody had similar knowledge and you were the unquestioned expert boss, you could pit people against each other to compete for your attention and your praise. Now, each individual has some piece of unique knowledge, if not skills, and definitely unique from you. So this is a movement from individual intelligence to collective intelligence. And that's a cultural shift because you want your people to collaborate. Love that. The third is a shift in approach. We used to be able to just use extrinsic motivation, punishments, threats, and rewards. Now we need to rely on intrinsic motivation, which is helping people get in touch with their own internal drive so they become self-propelled. We're never going to get people to learn and adapt at the speed, scale, and scope we need through punishments, threats, and rewards. It simply won't work. That's true. And is that micromanagement too? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Okay. And then finally is a shift in behavior. So as that unquestioned expert, you used to pretty myopically drive productivity, domination, fear, even sometimes humiliation. That doesn't work anymore. It hasn't worked. It's really led to lower levels of engagement and higher levels of burnout. So now we need coaches who can create effectiveness through inspiration, who can create high-performing teams without burning them out, which means inspiring folks, being that caring, compassionate um, coach who focuses on loving their people and helping people feel a sense of belonging so that they can thrive in the organization. So those Hmm. are the four leadership shifts. Mindset, culture, approach, and behavior. It's so simple in theory and what you talk about 
just makes you feel like hopeful. Like if every company did this. Yeah, so, I'm a belligerent optimist. We're going to do this. Right. Well, that's, I, I am too. I'm a, well, I don't know if I'm actually just an optimist. <laughs> um, but if people, so I understand. So my guess is they buy the books, you go in and you're going to, you're going to talk this talk yeah. and people are, it's going to resonate and the workers are going to go, oh my God, Heather, make the leaders change. Like we need this. Any companies you see doing a good job right now? Um, yeah, there are some companies, there are com- divisions, there are areas that people are doing it in, in pockets. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned you know, Mercer or Mercy. Yeah. Mercy is doing it. Uh, yeah. Patagonia certainly has been on this for, you know, way ahead of the curve. Yeah. So there've been organizations that have been out there kind of leading with this. Uh, kind of approach, but what uh, Chris and I saw, I saw it out there speaking because I spoke to something like 300 companies, over, you know, through the pandemic. Wow. Spoke with a lot of leaders is that, you know, this was happening and they were like, what? You know, they like, didn't know how to adapt. And so Chris and I got together and I'm like, we got to get this book out because the zeitgeist has changed and they need a guide. Absolutely. And so we did this in like a hundred days. <laughs> It's amazing. And that's a huge undertaking, by the way, because I saw all the footnotes, like how much research went into this. Like yeah. that's huge. So you you probably didn't sleep very much between the two of you. So congrats. When is the book going to be released and where can people find it? Um, the book is out March 8th. It will, of course, be on Amazon, which is wonderful, but also your independent bookstores. I always like to help those folks out because I love a good indie bookstore. So um, that's where you can find it. Love it. And if people want to connect with you, do you like to hang out at LinkedIn? Where where on social? Yes, I spend a tremendous amount of time on LinkedIn. That's where my learning network is. So please be part of it. You will you'll make me smarter, no doubt. So people will post an article and say, Hey, did you did you see this research article? That's where most of my research department is LinkedIn. It's my network on LinkedIn. So I'm very thankful for the generosity of folks there. Um, you can also find me on my website, which will show you, you know, speaking reels and that sort of thing. And you can contact me either there or through LinkedIn. So it's heathermcgowan.com. Perfect. And all of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com with hyperlinks to everything that Heather just mentioned. Um, thanks for being here for the work you're doing to empower leaders and organizations to create a more happy, fulfilled workforce. I mean, this is like, it's, we spend so much of our lives working. We should all have some sense of meaning and joy with it, right? It doesn't seem out of reach to me after talking to you. No one will do better work and create value, better value. I mean, there's, who wouldn't want to work in this environment, right? Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful and I'm, gra- and I'm grateful to you for writing the empathy advantage and um, congrats to you and to Chris. Um, who I didn't meet and um, good luck with all this. And I'll be curious to see, uh, I'll be following you on LinkedIn to see how things um, start shifting. I'm hopeful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Heather. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.